1: Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we're looking at a show that's going to take us, well, thousands of miles from North America, but it's going to bring us in contact with a value, an indigenous value that's been embraced in actually the Middle East. And we'll talk about some of the implications there and how it uh, relates to Native Americans and other people here in the U.S. Have I got your curiosity up? Well, I've got an amazing guest with me. Her name is Ruth Boyd. Ruth, it is great to have you with us.
2: It is great to be here. Thank you so much, Dr. DeRose.
1: Ruth, you are uh, the founder of a project called Woven Dignity. And just mentioning the name, folks throughout Indian country are thinking about their weaving, uh, native crafts. I think there's really some powerful parallels with indigenous uh, First Nations practices here in North America. But tell us about woven dignity in the Middle East and what that's all about.
2: Mm. Well, when you talk about woven dignity in North America, I'm already seeing just all the vibrant colors. But woven dignity in Lebanon, how that started or what it is about is women. There's so many refugee women here. There's 1.5 million in our tiny little nation. And the idea is that they needed work. They have no ability to get jobs um, or very, very limited. And so the idea is that they could make something in their home that we could then sell. So right now they're just sewing hand embroidered cards and then primarily, those are taken to the United States where they are sold. So that's the idea.
1: Well, this is exciting. And what's exciting to me about all of this is we think of, of people who've been oppressed, people have been moved by war and by uh, adverse situations, and people throughout Indian country, I mean, they immediately relate. I mean, that's Yeah. You know, the history of First Nation peoples here in North America. So they may not be Iraqi or Syrian or refugees who are in Lebanon, but many of them have that same cultural history. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think what we're dealing with is a common theme in many places in the world. Now, we talk about you currently being in Lebanon Mm -hmm. For some folks, they immediately see a map in their mind's eye and they've got Lebanon, you know, geographically nailed down. But for others, they're thinking Lebanon, Lebanon. Mm -hmm. I know I've heard of that. Can you (laughs) give us some idea on radio as to how to find Lebanon on a map?
2: Well, that's a good question. And to be honest, even before I moved, right before we moved here, I didn't know where Lebanon was on the map, okay? So I understand that. But um, now I know that it's close to Egypt and Israel and Turkey and Iran and Jordan. So those are all countries that are very close to us. Does that help? It's in the Middle East. I
1: think so. So most people know Europe and Africa. There's that Mediterranean Sea kind yes. of between them, that body of water. And if you go to the far eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, actually Lebanon is on the Mediterranean, isn't it?
2: It is, yes.
1: So you could literally hop into a boat, and if you had plenty of fuel you could, or knew how to sail, you could get to some place like Italy or Spain through the Mediterranean Sea, if I got my geography right.
2: Yeah. And we could go to Cyprus and just like, I think you can go there by boat in less than an hour. So.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. So we've got Lebanon geographically fixed and we're listening to your voice. I think a lot of people, when they talk with someone who's abroad and they're wondering, well, is this a Lebanese accent? Are your roots in Lebanon? You said you, you acted like you didn't know where it was. So we're assuming you're from somewhere else
2: (laughs) no I was born in Great Britain and we moved to America when I was five and lived in America until we moved actually we went to Indonesia first with our whole family we have four boys and we all moved there for eight years and then they slowly started hopping out of the nest and we jumped to Beirut Lebanon three and a half years ago
1: Okay. So, so Beirut, yeah. Lebanon. Um, yeah. Let's paint this picture a little bit more clearly because Beirut, I think a lot of people heard about a, a catastrophe there. It seems like just a few years ago, wasn't there a real <laughs> big explosion or something there? Can you give us some uh, recent history?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: There sure was. Yeah, there was an, an extremely big explosion. They say it was Next to the nuclear bomb explosions that have happened around the world, I think it was the second largest man-made explosion. And um, of course it really rocked the nation, but I think what was so devastating about the blast was, um, of course it was during Corona, which was already having a huge impact on the world, but also on Lebanon. And on top of that, we were in the middle of a revolution, and um, the economy just plunged here. So the main currency note here is 100,000 bill, or that's the biggest, biggest one. And when we first moved here, it was worth $65. That was three and a half years ago. Now, today, it is worth less than $1, right under $1. So imagine
1: so wait a minute, you're saying you went from something that was worth 65 U.S. dollars yes. to less than one U.S. dollar? Yes. So what does that do to, you know, all the economic relations, people's income, their savings? How was that impacted?
2: Well, basically now the banks are non-functioning, so people that had savings in the bank could not get their money out so they lost all their savings um and now the banks pretty much don't work like any job that you work at even i am paid in cash we're not paid through a bank anymore and i mean it's just devastated people we now the i think the population for a while the average population it was 90 percent or living below poverty line. I think it's settling more in the 80s now, but imagine 80% of the population being below poverty line. So it's it's been devastating.
1: So on top of this, then you, you're talking about indigenous Lebanese, but then you've got yes. a large refugee population in Lebanon. Tell us about that connection.
2: Yeah, so so we've got we've got 1.5 million refugees living here and they were already struggling pre crisis pre explosion so imagine them now you know most of them without jobs and just i mean they're just struggling to put a meal on the table
1: so ruth i've been to lebanon not all that long ago so i have a little feel for how things are there, but I know a lot of folks, when they hear about refugees or folks in Indian country, when they think about how uh, Native Americans were historically treated, moved into reservations, reserves, depending on what part of North America you're in, different terminology maybe, but uh, definable uh, clusters of people of a Uh, different ethnicity, different race, uh, different background than the majority population. So if we're in Lebanon, is it the same way? Are there these uh, that we sometimes hear of refugee camps or are things different than that?
2: Yes and no. There are camps over in Becca Valley area where people are just living in these temporary tent-like settings and yet they're there for many, many years. In fact, the average refugee is known to stay in refugee status from anywhere from 9 to 23 years. Um, But many of the refugees in Lebanon, Lebanon are integrated into tiny little apartments just tucked away here or there, one bedroom here, one bedroom there.
1: Wow. So you may have a whole family living in very crowded conditions. Is that true?
2: Yes. In fact, one of the ladies that sews for us She and her two sons, and used to be husband, there's more to this story, but they live in one dorm room and have for the last 10 years.
1: Wow. So refugee status, they're living, maybe their neighbors are Lebanese citizens. They're labeled refugees. They have paperwork that indicates they're refugees. What implications does that have as far as getting a job in an economy where it sounds like jobs are pretty scarce?
2: Yeah, very hard. For the men, they're lucky. Men are more likely to get a job and boys are more likely to get a job. But it's still very, very difficult. If they do get a job, they are getting paid around $100 to $150 a month. Um, But for women, it's almost impossible for them to get a job.
1: So, Ruth, you came to Lebanon, uh, how long ago? You said three, three and a half years ago. Is that right?
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: And at some point in time, you became aware of this situation with refugees in Lebanon and your heart went out to them. Tell us a little bit about how that came together.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: It actually happened before I came to Lebanon. About three years prior to moving to Lebanon, I was on a plane traveling from Indonesia to the US, and I watched a documentary called Moving People. And that is where I learned the statistic that the average refugee lives in that setting for 17 years. That's what they said in that documentary. And by the time I got to the end of that documentary, I heard a very clear call in my heart. to how was I going to respond to this? And I made a commitment, actually, to the creator that one day I would work with refugees. So, yeah.
1: Wow. So this is amazing. So you had no idea you were going to ever end up in Lebanon. No. And you're watching um, a documentary on a plane, and you just feel like the Creator speaking in your heart, saying, I need to do something to make a difference. And a lot of people would say, well, that's nonsense. You can't make a difference, people, that you're not around. But your heart was being prepared. Yeah. Did it just have that commitment that you'd made and kind of forgot about it, or was it something you were mindful of?
2: Yeah, in my mind it was going to play out a completely different way. Like I imagined that in a couple of years we'd go back to the United States and that I would find some refugees there because there were not refugees where we were living in Indonesia. And then when we received the request for us to come to the Middle East, I had no desire to move here at all. I felt probably the same way that most Americans feel. What? Go to the Middle East? That's crazy. And <laughs> And I was talking to the principal where my kids go to, were going to school at, at an international school. And she was like, Ruth, I would do anything to go to Lebanon. And I'm like, why? And she says, because there's refugees there. And the minute she said that, the promise I had made clicked in my mind. I had forgotten it, to be honest. and um, And that's what motivated me to go ahead and be willing to make the move.
1: Wow, so uh, basically, you were we could say divinely prepared, yeah, to make a move that humanly you did not want to make, and you realized that this was really something you were being prepared for
2: a hundred percent
1: this is amazing, and uh we want to hear where things go from there because we know there's a lot more to the story. We know it has implications for everyone who's listening today because we may feel like you, we don't know. Refugees, And yet um, we're going to talk about parallels right here in North America, whether we're dealing with a formal immigrant refugee population or whether we talk about Indian country and some of the parallels that we find there. We have to step away. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Ruth Boyd. She is the founder of a project called Woven Dignity. You're going to learn more about it, how to get in contact with her, how to even watch some free videos that go along with some of the amazing stories that they've had, right after these messages. Stay tuned.
0: Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L That stands for American Indian, Alaska Native Living. Again, AIANl.org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673.
1: Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're speaking about an innovative project that's taking place in the Middle East, in the country of Lebanon, and uh, we're getting a firsthand look at the start of a ministry called Woven Dignity. Ruth Boyd is the founder. She's my guest, joining me actually from Beirut area, Lebanon. Ruth, you've been sharing your story with us, and uh, this moving on your heart that led you to have this vision to help refugees, we're... um, why don't you learn, though, a little bit more about the Woven Dignity Program? Those who've been with us from the top of the hour, they've heard a bit about it. But maybe before we get into that, if folks um, want to learn more about the project, maybe see some of the videos and other things that you've produced, why don't you let us know how we can contact your organization?
2: I think the easiest thing for them to do is just go to our website, which is wovendignity.com. And our videos are on YouTube under Woven Dignity. So I think that would be the easiest thing.
1: Okay. So if I can remember Woven, W-O-V-E-N, mm-hmm. Dignity, mm-hmm. and then I just go WovenDignity.com, and that will take me to the website, correct? hmm And if I just jump onto YouTube and put in Woven Dignity, that will pull up your videos, correct?
2: Should, yes.
1: <laughs> okay. Easy enough. So we've gotten to the point where you and your husband are moving to Lebanon. You have this vision, you know, it's a calling. It's not just something that you dreamed up, even though your first reaction was not a warm one to end up Mm -hmm. in the Middle East. True. So uh, how does woven dignity come together? And what are the pieces in the puzzle that had to fit together? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I kept just, As we were here trying to figure it out, what I was going to do, I kept knocking on different doors and nothing was really opening. But meanwhile, I did make friends with three refugee women who were living in a really tiny little garage space. That's all it was. It was like half the size of a normal American garage. And they had been there for three years. Um, And my sister-in-law actually in America gave me the idea of these hand embroidered cards. The funny thing is I don't sew. But I thought, well, I could at least teach them to make one of these, surely. And then I just thought this is something I could easily carry back to the U.S. and sell. It would be lightweight, you know. And so I taught them how to sew these cards. And at first, I think they just thought it was kind of a like a fun little craft, you know. But I began to pay them for their work, which, of course, they were delighted in. And the amazing thing is, is that 96 cards later, they moved from what they called their prison into a home that had a bedroom, a living room, a kitchen, a veranda. It was safe. It was pleasant. Um, So it was completely liberating. And that's how we started.
1: So let me see if I understand this. Are you saying, Ruth, that because of the income they made weaving these cards, they were able to move?
2: Yeah. In 96 cards, wow. they were able to make. Well,
1: so how much were you paying them for, per card?
2: I was paying them the equivalent of a dollar in Lebanese pounds. And <laughs> I'm laughing because things have changed so much in the three and a half years. Like For the longest time, I kept paying everyone in Lebanese pounds, but the pound depreciated so much so fast That just about six months ago, we switched to dollars, and now we pay everyone in dollars. And it was the best decision we ever made.
1: (laughs) Okay, so they're getting paid U.S. dollars.
2: Yeah, Yep.
1: So what is the going price for someone who does one of these cards? How much do they get in U.S. dollars?
2: They get a dollar. So really, it's the same as when they first started, but it's a little bit based on time. So if it's a more complicated card, they get more. But the average card is they get paid a dollar.
1: And then you will bring those to the United States and then sell them? Is that how it works?
2: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: Are they sold online? Like if I go to wovendignity.com, can I buy these cards?
2: Yes, you can. And there is more cost involved. So like the average cards on our website are five to six dollars. But people need to understand that we have to buy the supplies. We have to pay someone to build the card, like to put it all together. Plus we're having to pay for... For some of our workers, all of our board are volunteering, but many of us are volunteering, like I'm volunteering, and most of my staff is. But we do have one lady that's like a translator, and she does all the payroll. She goes and visits all the ladies and buys all the supplies. She gets paid. She's a Lebanese.
1: So it's a pretty lean organization, what you're telling us. Yeah. 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 So, uh, okay, so basically right now I'm learning that I can help By purchasing the cards, is that right? And I'm assuming that because there's a lot of uh, overhead with getting the cards here and it's not like you're probably making a trip every week to the U.S., even if you were, that would be pretty costly. Yeah. So um, is there ways that people can also donate to help uh, the project?
2: Absolutely. And some people even sponsor refugee women too. So, and I have two of our ladies that are being sponsored at $150 a month. The lady gets all that money and, um, and in turn, the donor gets about 25 cards so that they can do with whatever they want every month. They could resell them for all we care. You know what I mean?
3: Huh. Yeah.
1: Okay. So very interesting project. and. We want to tie this to native crafts, to handiwork, to things. So people throughout Indian country, they're perhaps thinking, well, you know, we have indigenous crafts that we've done for years, Mm -hmm. and some of them are relating to this. They're saying, yeah, when they moved us to reservations, I mean, this was something that we found that is of value in the broader market. Mm -hmm. What have you noticed, not just about the ability to make an income, but is there something about working with your hands, about creating something have you found a connection between that dimension and how this impacts those who you're working with?
2: For sure. Um, even just this a few weeks ago, I was with one of my refugee women for over a weekend. We were at a retreat together. And I noticed she really is struggling with her health. She has Addison's disease. She has diabetes. And her actually, her work has really deteriorated. Like, she's not even really sewing nicely at this point and I think part of it is her eyesight part of it is just she's so ill and we've talked on our board what are we going to do with this situation you know but I realized on that trip that her sewing even if she only sews two or three cards a month and even if they're not at the standard I need but it proves to her that she is still alive that she is still doing something, that she's still worthy. And so to me, this is what woven dignity is all about. This is what sewing even and making handcrafts is all about. That it is more, it is way more than just an income. It is giving dignity, it is giving purpose, it is giving, it is giving them a reason to face yet another day.
1: You know what I love about this, and I'm making this translation into indigenous communities here in North America, because uh, a lot of times we've heard stories, I have as I've traveled throughout Indian country, about Native youth who maybe were disconnected from their cultural roots. And uh, some of the stories you know, do involve uh, things that were indigenous activities that they become involved with. And it... Reconnects them not only with their community, not only with their native heritage, Mm -hmm. but also with uh, the fact that they are of value. I I think there's so much Mm -hmm. in today's world, so much focus on things that uh, are supposed to be fun or a good time or something, but at the end of it, you don't have anything to show or you're worse off Mm -hmm. than when you started. But here, if someone takes some time, they start with, uh, I'm assuming kind of a blank template and they've sewed the car. Do they have a design or are mm-hmm. they, some of them actually doing the artwork too? How does that all work?
2: Some, a lot of designs we purchased, but we do have a, three or four original designs that our ladies created. So, yeah.
1: So they do this creative work mm-hmm. and uh, whether they've designed it or one of their peers designed it or someone else, mm-hmm. and they have something at the end of that activity, not only are they getting paid for it? Mm-hmm. But they've created something that's that's beautiful. Have you have people shared that dimension with you? Not just that it's a source of income and that you're a nice person to work with? Have they talked about what they're creating? Mm -hmm.
2: For sure. One of my workers says that for her, it just relieves so much stress for her. Like she can be angry and upset. I mean, you imagine their situation is so frustrating because most of them are just waiting to travel. They're just hoping to leave and get residency somewhere. And, and so there's a lot of frustration. They don't have any rights, you know? And so So, yes, like for her, it's that it's it it helps with just her anger and her frustration. Um, But I and I think also it it gives it gives control. It gives some autonomy back to them. I often say there's nothing worse than being dependent on unpredictable handouts. This they can decide how much they want to work and how much they want to earn. And it gives some control back to them, you know.
1: This is a wonderful project, and it really connects us with these uh, hands-on values, the creative uh, abilities that, if you will, the creator has given everyone on the planet. Ruth, uh, I know you are doing some other exciting things that interface indirectly with Woven Dignity. We want to speak about that in our next segment and really kind of build on what we've talked about here. I'm Dr. David DeRose. You're listening to my interview with Ruth Boyd. You want to stay by because there's a lot of practical things that will impact your health and your outlook in the next segment. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more. American Indian and Alaska Native
0: Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at aianl.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now passersby are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org.
1: Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know, I'm Jan and I'm free from meth.
3: If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and
2: confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth.
0: You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose.
1: Welcome back for the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest is Ruth Boyd. She is the founder of a group called Woven Dignity. She's connecting refugees in the Middle East with the power of Creating things, making things with your hands, in this case, woven cards. If you're just joining us, you can learn more about the project at wovendignity.com or you can go on YouTube and see some of the firsthand videos featuring some of the very individuals that Ruth and her team are working with. Simply put in Woven Dignity into the search engine there on YouTube and you'll find some of their videos. Ruth You and I, in fact, uh, your husband, my wife, uh, Dr. Sonia DeRose, we Mm -hmm. all got acquainted some months ago when we were invited to come to the Middle East to uh, actually several venues. One of them was in Lebanon and to be involved with health programming. You were one of the point people because not only are you the founder of Woven Dignity, you also have a leadership role in health activities and uh, some of the work happening there in Lebanon. Tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing in Lebanon that relates to that other side of some of what you do.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, well, really, I'm a nurse, and it's kind of funny because when I'm working with Women Dignity, I probably have said a thousand times, I'm a nurse, not a businesswoman. (laughs) But so it's funny, the journey that I'm on there. But um, yes, I am very excited about a project I'm getting to work on in my real job. And that is, it's a forgiveness program. Um, We know that all throughout the world, people have issues forgiving, even me, myself. But we also know that people that don't forgive, that there is huge implications that affect their health. But it really is an issue in the Middle East. You can only imagine with the wars and all the terrorism and pain and, and just so much suffering that, that it really, it's a big, big issue here.
1: So one of the things that I love about the topic of forgiveness, I think a lot of folks, when they've been victimized, mm-hmm. forgiveness sounds like you're giving people a pass mm-hmm. for what they've done in the past. And uh, this is really not what it's about. It's not about people not having to be accountable. It's not about setting aside justice. Frame that a little bit for us because Native Americans, of course, they relate to these issues as well. You know, we talk a lot about historical trauma in indigenous communities. That term could easily be used in speaking of, you know, refugees and all that they've uh, suffered. So why is forgiveness something that's still compatible even with justice in the world?
3: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think all of us want whoever has hurt us to suffer, right? We want them to somehow be punished. And I think it's human mentality that we think, well, if we don't forgive them, then they are suffering. But somehow most of them don't even know that that we are holding this bitterness inside of us. And it's the bitterness that actually destroys us. And I was most drawn into this work by Dr. Levy's book, The Gray Matters. He's a neuro, neurologist, and he says often he would do workups on people that came to him with major neurological problems, and all their tests would be negative. And that is when he began to look at or ask them is there someone you need to forgive in your life? And there was often this connection. I thought that was so powerful, but it is so true that when we don't forgive, it's like being handcuffed to the offender.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting topic. And uh, again, we're not saying that this means that there isn't justice. There isn't uh, you know an appropriate realm for that. But it's it's what you're clinging to, and it's it's your identity, right? Are you a victim? Yes. Or are you someone who's a survivor? Are you going beyond the, what someone did to you, as bad as it was, and as much as there is a reason for justice to be meted out at some point? That's not my responsibility, right? Uh, so. I know it's a deep dialogue. We engage with this, Ruth, and, and I think you and I may have even spoken about this, but a lot of my listeners know that we've done a couple of different projects that we featured on the radio broadcast. So many folks have heard about our 30 Days to Better Health, mm-hmm. and that project uh, basically is 30 short videos. It was originally designed, historically, it was designed especially for Native American communities. So, uh, I had written a book, uh, co-authored a book with several other authors on high blood pressure. And I had a Native friend who challenged me who said, you know, make something that would, could be more easily used in Indian country uh, where people wouldn't have to read. I mean, some mm. Native Americans uh, may not have access to a large book like we'd written. They may not be readers like many people mm. in, in any segment of the population. Mm-hmm. So we came out with these short videos. And what the tie is, as we were looking at factors that affect blood pressure, Mm -hmm. one of them, or several that emerged, were things that we would say more are relational or spiritual values. Mm -hmm. And we did actually feature a section in that book on forgiveness. Yeah. So uh, when you and I were speaking there in in Lebanon about your interest in this topic, Mm -hmm. I immediately resonated with that because it is something that has these these far-reaching health implications. So let's take this now, this... uh, this insight that harboring ill will, clinging to uh, trauma, if you will, and how it has hurt you Mm -hmm. can have negative implications. Let's bring it back to woven dignity. You're working with these ladies. They've been traumatized. Mm -hmm. They have every right to feel that they've been victimized in many ways. Mm -hmm. And they're opening up to you in the context of making cards. How have you found that this understanding as a registered nurse and forgiveness and its implications in health. How has that impacted what you do with Woven Dignity?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely motivates me and it it motivates me also to do more than just provide work like I am not satisfied until we go deeper, you know what I'm saying. So I want to be their friends, but I also want to hopefully be their mentor and someone who can encourage them. And I'm hoping in time with some of them I can we can already do teaching and hopefully move them to more wholeness. But it definitely is a goal of mine that we can have a bigger impact than just just financial. But I also want to say that often we have to take care of the basic needs before we can address the emotional, spiritual, the whole package. Do You know what I'm saying? If, they're, if mm. their basic needs aren't met, then we can't even go there.
1: No, I mean, this is such an important point. And I'm so glad that you're making an impact on these basic needs. Mm-hmm. I will tell you one of the other things that my wife and I were impressed with when we were there in Lebanon and working with you and and, and colleagues that you're partnered with there in Lebanon mm-hmm. is just to see that you have a number of broad kind of far-reaching initiatives. that are trying to impact people's health in different ways. Mm-hmm. I know at one point you had me speaking to people about you know strictly health topics uh, in a venue there, but um, you also invited us to. Uh, to speak with a group of refugees that uh, that had health concerns and you know answer health questions, so we really saw that you're trying to offer these practical services on a multiple uh, you know multiplicity of levels. Mm-hmm. So kind of coming back to all that now and back to your your nursing, one of the things that I've been interested in is I work with community groups, whether we're in Indian country or whether we're in the Middle East or anywhere else. Mm-hmm is that oftentimes there's a disconnect between what people think they need. As far as maybe I would say basic health things, a lot of times people think, well, I need access to this surgery or this medication. Mm -hmm. What I noticed in Lebanon, and maybe it was true there because of the financial stress, the financial duress, it seemed like there was a lot more interest in what we would say are traditional Native values here in North America or traditional Indigenous values throughout the world, and that would be more natural remedies, things that people could access. Is that something that I was seeing through kind of a narrow perspective and not seeing the big picture? Or have you found, Ruth, there in Lebanon, in the economic setting, that there's a lot of people looking at simple things that they can do, how they can take care of themselves? Have you noticed that?
2: Um I mean, I do think that people are interested in knowing simple health remedies, yes, but but we also do struggle a lot with people just wanting the quick fix, you know what I mean? I have high blood mm-hmm. pressure, give me a pill, you know, so I think there still is very much attention. I do appreciate the work that you have done on, you know, with the 30 natural remedies and... um. I think that this is something that I would love to partner with you more going ahead in the future.
1: Well, that's a dialogue for another time. Yes, We'll definitely uh, keep that on our list. So let's bring it back this way then. There's a lot of folks listening right now and they've been engaged by your story. They've been engaged by your project and they have some practical questions like, well, this sounds like a great project. Sounds like it's fairly recent. You've just been there a few years how many people are involved with woven dignity and, and what will it take to make a bigger impact as far as touching more women? Can you give us some perspective? Because there may be folks that uh, maybe want to help in ways that I'm not imagining right now.
2: Mm-hmm. So right now we have eight refugees working for us. And honestly, I think, oh, that's such a small impact. But um I'm had many people speak to me and say don't get discouraged about this low number because where big organizations come in like the UN or or maybe Adra or some big organization in a disaster they do big big handouts but they have very little personal impact and so they're like your personal impact you're having on these eight is huge and you could follow their stories for years of how this changed their lives so that's where we're at. I have a goal that by in the next 3 years we would be up to 50 refugee women. Um how we're going to get there our biggest need right now is 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 getting the sales of the cards promoted and out. So we up to this date we have sold about 4,000 cards but we have about that many in stock also. You know what I'm saying? So, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's our biggest need probably.
1: So I hear the challenge. So even with those eight ladies, you're making more inventory than you're selling.
2: Yes. They're sewing faster than we're selling.
1: So if any of you listening today say, well, Hey, here's a great project and, and people can buy these at whatever the going rate is, but they can sell them for whatever they want. Right. If they want to sell them as original artwork for $25 a card, they could do that?
2: For sure.
1: We're not trying to give you some money-making uh,
2: <laughs>
1: strategy here. Uh, I'm a physician. Ruth is a nurse, so you should question our our, our business acumen. <laughs> but the idea is there's opportunity to make a difference simply by uh, jumping on the website and even buying some cards, right?
2: For sure. 100%.
1: Now, what about someone who is looking for an opportunity to impact refugees, do you need more feet on the ground? We're going to ask you that question when we come back because we do have to step away just briefly. When we come back, not only do we have some other insights about woven dignity, but we're going to bring it back to uh, some important health dialogue, some things that can make a difference for your health and beyond. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with more right after these messages. Stay tuned.
0: Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome
1: back to our final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm speaking with Ruth Boyd from Lebanon. We're speaking about a project called Woven Dignity, and we're drawing some connections between doing things that are hands-on, engaging with practical crafts, practical skills, having a sense of outlet, if you will, especially when you're in difficult circumstances and how this can have a benefit on our whole person health. That's what Ruth and her team have been doing with Woven Dignity. Ruth, one of the connections that we made in an earlier segment, I always have to be mindful of this. I think, wow, we've got a lot of regular listeners, and that's true. I run into them as I travel around the country, but there's a lot of folks that are likely just tuning in for this broadcast, and we've left a number of loose ends. So we want to first make sure that folks I uh, have in mind the connection with Woven Dignity. So in a bit, we're going to be giving a firsthand story of someone who's been impacted by Woven Dignity. You'll be telling us that, and you'll be uh, letting us know how we can uh, engage with you folks on the web. Uh, we also want to mention, we talked about a project that you and and I have been speaking about some ways to Support what you're doing in the Middle East. Uh, Folks throughout Indian country have been using it. Um, I was actually just talking with someone yesterday in another part of uh, the country, and in their community they have a a tribal health center that has used these uh, very uh, same 30 Days to Better Health videos in their tribal center. So I figured, like, we probably should let people know if they haven't. They're just hearing about it for the first time. So the uh, free program, 30 Days to Better Health, you can access that at timeless healinginsights.org/30 so some browsers you've got to put a www in front of it so www.timelesshealinginsights.org/the number 30 30 and that will take you where you can sign up for this free 30-day program every day a short 6-minute video giving you pointers on how to improve your health And one of those pointers later in the program deals with things like kindness and forgiveness. Ruth, you've been engaging us with those things because that's what you've been doing. You've been showing kindness. You've been helping people, trying to connect with uh, the power of forgiveness as you're helping them with their practical needs, giving them employment, using their creative skills. Tell us, first of all, again, about the website If folks have just joined. They want to engage with Woven Dignity. Maybe they want to buy some of these beautiful cards that some of your ladies have made. Tell us uh, how they go about doing that.
2: So they simply can go to wovendignity.com, and they will find our cards there. They can also donate there. 80% of the donations go directly back to the women. And so we'd love to see activity there.
1: Okay, so Mm WovenDignity.com.
2: And also, if people just want to write me directly, if they have questions, they can write to me at WovenDignity at gmail.com, and I'm there.
1: Oh, Okay, so it's that easy. WovenDignity at Mm gmail.com. Okay, beautiful. Let's hear a story, because I know sometimes we hear about all these theoretical things, conceptual things, but... I don't think there's anything that brings it home as much as talking about real people. So share, share a story with us.
2: Mm-hmm. Probably about six months ago, um, I received a message from one a twin boy who's 16 years old asking if his mom could work for me. He'd heard about love and dignity. Well, at first I just kind of brushed him off because we didn't really have a need to yet employ another woman. But, um, I couldn't get him out of my mind because I'd heard a little bit more about his story. And it turns out that his father had borrowed ten thousand dollars from family and friends and had tried to was trying to make his way to a European country for the idea that he could get citizenship, find a job, and be able to bring his family. However, Along the way, the people that were leading him more than likely are the ones that stole his money, but his money was stolen. And now he is being held captive in a different country um, and just having to work very minimal paying jobs by the men that were supposed to be leading him to freedom, which has left the two twin boys and their mom in a tiny little dorm room where they've lived for the last 10 years so let
1: me see if i'm hearing this right ruth so basically this sounds like one of these human trafficking scenarios where someone gets together a bunch of money they're going to pay someone to take them somewhere and help them get established and their money is taken and then they find themselves in a circumstance where they can't leave is that the scenario that we're talking about
2: exactly That is exactly what's happening. So now these two boys are very brilliant, these 16 year old boys, and um, they are in school still, but as soon as school gets out, they're having to work. And between the two of them, they're bringing less than a hundred dollars home a month. And the mom is going crazy because here she has no job. Her husband is gone. They borrowed all this money. She has started sewing for us, and this has more than doubled their income, and it gives her a sense of purpose. It gives her something to do. She also gets a therapeutic weekly visit from someone that's listening to her and praying for her. So it just has really helped the family tremendously.
1: Wonderful. One of the huge messages that I've gotten from what you're doing, Ruth, is a lot of times we disqualify ourselves from doing maybe some of the very things the creator's calling us to do. We say, well, I don't have those skills. And i have been thinking about your story. I mean, maybe as a nurse, I know as a physician, they taught us how to suture. But if I gathered right, you were not a seamstress, right?
2: Yeah, no, I don't really like sewing. (laughs) But I think more than that is like running an NGO. Oh, wow. Has it Pushed me and stretched me beyond what I ever, ever expected. Like, had I known how big this was going to get, and I know it's little, but believe me, it takes hours of my time, I would have never said yes. I would have never started. And a friend pointed out to me just the other day. She's like, Well, Ruth, that's exactly why you didn't know. Because if you would have known, you would have never done it. And um, and it's true, you know, but I do believe it's what God wanted me to do, the creator for sure.
1: And it doesn't sound like you're resenting it, even though you wouldn't have chosen it. You see how this has brought additional meaning and purpose to people. And I sense that you yourself have been blessed in doing it. Is that right?
2: A hundred percent sure. And I I believe that often we are given tasks that are bigger than ourselves, but it is for a reason and a purpose. It's so that we can see um, the creator doing things through us. And I think there's no better place to be than being used by him for his purpose and his glory and his honor. And, um, I think that I am only just beginning to see the beginning of what's going to happen through this project.
1: Wow. So, uh, it's an inspiration because some of you tuning in today, I don't know what you're being called to do. I don't know what idea you have on your reservation and your, Tribal community center, whether you're native, whether you're not, I mean, you're listening to this show and there's something that you say, well, I really should be doing, but I don't have the skills. I mean, if I do it, maybe you've started something and it just seems like it's going nowhere. You're impacting absolutely no one. I could tell you stories, Ruth, I'm sure you could too, about my work in health education. I think uh, some of the first health programs I did in community settings, I mean, I think one of them, three people came to. They were all from one family. Uh, You know, if you look at, you know, the impact of some of the things you do, you say like, well, what am I doing? You know, what a waste of time. But uh, these things get multiplied. And I thank you for sharing what you've been doing because you've touched a lot of people through today's edition of the broadcast. And I know there's folks who are going to want to connect with you. Give us one more time your email address and the website and tell us why we should reach out, why we should visit the website.
2: So you can email me directly at wovendignity@gmail.com at or you can go to the website, which is wovendignity.com. And I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to interact with you. And I think the reason why we need to get involved is just three weeks ago, my husband and I were able to go to Syria, and we um, actually went to Aleppo to the heart of the destruction from the um, earthquakes but what struck me the most about that trip was just all the devastation really from the war not from the earthquake and the loss of the hopelessness of the people there and we need to continue to make a difference for these people we don't need to turn our eyes away as we need to keep advocating and helping and reaching out we can't forget
1: Wonderful. There's needs in our own country, needs uh, in Indian country, needs in the Middle East, needs wherever you're tuning in, whether you're listening to a podcast uh, of this show in Africa or Asia or in North America or Europe or the Middle East. Ruth, thank you for sharing your story. Again, the website is simply WovenDignity.com. You can purchase cards there. You can make donations. You can learn more about the ministry. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose, Wishing each of you the very best of health. This is Life Talk Radio.